Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Hello, everyone. Um, we'll be reading from the devotional. We'll be practicing the rule of life, which is to exhale everything that hinders our time here and tuning to God and inhaling the presence of God. So before I read, let's all exhale. All the toxicities and everything that stands in the way of us being occupied in this place. And breathe in. The expectation that God is moving and the presence of God and his power at work in and through our and around our lives okay reading from january 6 jesus calling in the voice of jesus it's written i am able to do far beyond all that you can ask or imagine come to me with positive expectations knowing that there's no limit to what i can accomplish ask my spirit to control your mind so that you can think great thoughts of me do not be discouraged by the fact that many of your prayers are not are yet unanswered. Time is a trainer teaching you to wait upon me, to trust me in the dark. The more extreme your circumstances, the more likely you are to see my power and glory at work in the situation. Instead of letting difficulties draw you into worrying, try to view them as setting the scene for my glorious intervention. Keep your eyes and your mind wide open to all that I am doing in your life. Amen? You can all be seated. <clears throat> Welcome, everyone. Happy New Year. Everyone joining us online and in person. It's great to start back in the theater for the first service of the year. Let's put this... Uh, picture up here. For the remote services for the last two weeks, uh, we presented by Angel Studios the series called Chosen, which I think, in my opinion, it's the most poignant, powerful depiction of the Gospels ever created. And it's already reached one billion streams. And it's free completely, and it's in every language translated to the world almost. And it's becoming a movement. Sometimes, as preachers, I feel like we're constantly butchering who Jesus really is. <laughs> and it's not because we lack eloquence. Right, Stu? Paul? It's just that his beauty is beyond description. And it's too marvelous were words. Like the old song I used to sing in Sunday school, it's like nothing we ever seen or heard. As, as the great prolific theologian John Stott posits, Jesus has no rivals. Words fail to describe the beauty 
and the elegance and the majesty of Jesus. And that's why it was so refreshing to hear so many of you reporting to have tears. This is actually what a lot, the phenomenon for chosen um, who are cynical about religious films. Got a fade film, I'm not watching that. Anyone, a lot who've watched The Chosen have tears. I heard people on, on their iPhones going to a store having tears. Even families, Haley and Lee were talking about um, how their kids were asking, who is that? And then they're having tears. I'm trying to watch it myself. And they're in tears. Because sometimes when you see Jesus himself, not a preacher, not anyone, try to butcher or convey who he is. To see for yourself who he really is. It's a powerful moment. And I, I feel like The Chosen does that. So if you haven't watched the series, it's free on angelstudios.com or Amazon Prime or um, Netflix as well. In John chapter 4, the, the passage we're going to, our, it's our namesake actually, comes from um, this chapter with the hope to see beautiful life change the woman at the well experienced. You could even say she experienced what we call what? What's our number? 180. Somebody asked me one time, is that 180 degrees? I said, yeah, duh. Yes. One, and what, a 180 change. A 180 degree change. A complete change. We believe that when you meet Jesus, just like the woman in the well, everything changes about your vision, even your propensities of the heart toward community, the world, and vertically, your relationship with God. And that's why our community's name is 180 Degrees Church. Because we believe that when you meet Jesus, Him, not the church, not even a community of faith, because sometimes meeting a community of faith, like Gandhi said, could detract you from faith. Right? Gandhi said that if I never met a Christian, I would have become one. When he tried, after reading the New Testament, he went to a church, and people told him, go worship with your own people. And he said, well, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And so, in many ways, our vision is getting out of the way. Look at the person next to you. Get out of, tell them, get out of the way. <laughs> because we know that the gospel is this. Our darkness is great. Our brokenness, our despair, our blindness, our stubbornness is great. But the message of the gospel is good news because what? His love and light and hope is greater. Amen? So if you want to do a 180, and it's a degree, sometimes I've seen this in the last 20-something years in ministry, you can't take more than you can chew. Sometimes when you're young, particularly, you take on more than you can chew. And you want to do a complete 180 in one day. And I've seen this happen. People come to Christ at a retreat or a conference, and their life is disrupted. And they want to go to Bible school or a seminary or missions. And then I see them fall away. 
very rapidly. So if you look at the pattern of John 4, let's put this, uh, these numbers up here. I want to kind of show you the degrees we're talking about. Let's talk in math. In order to do a 180, actually the name comes from two right angles. Everybody put your hand up like this. The first 90 plus 90, and it points where? Vertically. So the first right angle is a vertical right angle. You have to get right with God. And our, our vision is simple. Joining God to restore the beauty in all things by helping people turn to Christ. The vertical right angle, that's the first one. And help people live for Christ. And that can only happen in community. So you need two right angles. But you can't do both in one day. It takes a lifetime. And when you add 90 plus 90, you get 180. So chew on that for a bit. But when you look at the angles, the first reality is for you to live a 180 degree life change, you have to first meet Jesus. Just Jesus. Nothing else. As Josh recently told me, and I told him about how Jesus has no rivals. He goes, Dad, well, when you want to say, you want to emphasize that to my generation, say no caps. That means no lying, right? Jesus has no rival, meaning no religious leader, no teacher, no book can rival meeting and seeing and experiencing Jesus for yourself. That's the first right angle. And you could see clearly the first movement in John chapter 4 is that the woman in the well, and it looks like the woman in the well meets Jesus, but really, if you look at the text carefully in the narrative, Jesus waits for her. And the first verse of John 4, 4 says that he had to go to Samaria. And I'm going to unpack this passage for the next few weeks, but Jews never went into Samaria because they were prejudiced and racist and avoided Samaria. They went the other way around the Jordan, which would take six days instead of the three. And if you saw Chosen, they displayed that very carefully. So the first is meeting Jesus. Second is living for Jesus. So that's what we want to try to help you see today. How does one's life change to such a degree? What, what has to happen that you do a complete 180? So let's go to this text. And we'll read from verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah. And because this is Jacob's well, the Samaritans actually had a even though they're theologically incorrect in many things, and Jesus corrects them, and that's one of the part of the series, the theology matter. Does the correct theological truth of God matter? Yeah, of course it does. But this particular part and the receptivity of Samaritans to Jesus, and they, this was the woman who first really accepted Christ as Messiah, that Jesus chose to reveal himself to, 
They thought that the Messiah was a teacher, not a king, like most Jews. They thought Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman enterprise. But the Samaritans thought of the Messiah as a teacher. So when she, when she says, when the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us, is very important. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So watch this. So here you see this woman encounter who Jesus is. Watch verse 27. His disciples, who's around Jesus, who's journeying with Jesus, who's walking with Jesus, at the same time, don't have this revelation. They're very dull to what he's doing. They have no, this is the word I want to use today because we're in the season of epiphany. So tell someone next to you, epiphany. The woman has epiphany. The disciples clearly don't because read it carefully. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Messiah? They came out of the town, made their word, told him. Uh, meanwhile, his disciple urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And then Jesus says, I have food you do not know of. And they go, what food? When did you get the food? We just went outside to get the food. Did he get food we don't know of? The dullness of the disciples and the enlightenment of the woman. And that's the contrast here. One sees, has revelation of Jesus. The other has no revelation. Even though they're drawn to Jesus, around Jesus, they're dull about the activity of the Spirit and God. Why is that? Because, simple, she experienced divine epiphany. And the disciples didn't. In short, the woman in the well is what the Greeks would call Cairo's time. She was in Cairo's time, which is God's time, or even Theophany, which when God visits. And the disciples were what? In Kronos time, just regular mundane time. And this is why the first degree change, the vertical is so important. Put this adaptation up here of, and if you want to think about this through a holistic biblical sense, this woman was a descendant of Jacob at Jacob's well. Jacob wrestled with God way before when Jacob experienced a theophany, and, and Jacob didn't know when Jacob, when God had to break Jacob's hip. Jacob is known as someone who wrestled with God. And that revelation came to him. And in that parallel, you see the woman, in many ways, wrestling with God too. And here, here's the thing. How do you know when you're in Cairo's time? How do you recognize it? When you're a muggle, like J.K. Rowling says in her book, you don't know. You're just eating cake. You're an idiot. You're moronic. 
But how do you recognize? Jacob recognized the theophany that it was God that visited him. And it was a divine moment in time that changed everything about the future, even this woman's life, because they're still wrestling with God. And through that wrestling, there's a life change. Jacob becomes right with God in this past tense, retrospectively, and this woman becomes right with God. And let me just put this quote up here in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany comes right after Advent and Christmas. And there's a lot here to unpack, but this is what I want to read from this devotional by Fleming Rutledge. And this is what she says. Epiphany means what exactly? Epiphania in the New Testament Greek means manifestation. In biblical faith, knowledge of the true God is not attainable by human effort. We cannot summon up the presence of the living Jesus by efforts of our own, however spiritual. His presence is his to give. That's very powerful and important. Any manifestation that reveals Jesus' true identity occurs because the power of God is at work upon the eyes, ears, and the hearts of the recipients. The unfolding of the epiphany season is therefore a record of God's definitive and unique actions in the one who has been born of Bethlehem. An epiphany starts yesterday, started yesterday, and ends on Valentine's Day. Why? I have no idea why. It's actually Ash Wednesday. That's when it ends. But so what is epiphany? Epiphany comes right after Christmas. It's about God's revelation. Epiphany reminds us in our futility of our own gospel witness, experience like someone like the prophet Jeremiah, who did not have a single convert. Can you imagine being a prophet and not seeing one single repentance? But yet, to not lose heart, because God's words never fail. In fact, me sharing with you Jeremiah's struggles ironically encourages us in what? In ours. Only proving once again that God's words never go, goes void. To never doubt what God has said in the light, in the darkness. Why? Because sometimes our struggle, and get this, is the manure. Tell someone next to you, the manure. You know what that is, right? God uses to fertilize and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much that's been planted in the future. Amen? So even in futility, even in darkness and discouragement, what God promises will be accomplished. But it's He who does the work. We can sow, we can water, but He's the one that gives the increase. He's the one that does it. And I've seen this epiphany. When you have no epiphany, we're like the disciples. What's going on? What is God doing? You just don't know. 
You're like a preacher without anointing. You keep butchering who Jesus is. People are like, what is he saying? What does he even do with his life? You know what I mean? It's like, if there's no anointing, there's no revelation vertically, it doesn't matter how good of a preacher you are. Even Jesus failed to communicate the kingdom of God to the people. And he was God. When there's no anointing, there's no anointing. God, the Father, has to reveal it. But then, when there is epiphany, it doesn't matter what the preacher says. He could say something stupid, and it's like, wow, that was profound. It was? Yeah, God really spoke to me about that. There are parallels and serendipity and, and even just things that you were thinking about. And there are times in our own services for the last decade, people go, how do you know that? How, how, you know, I've just been thinking about that. I was just talking to that about my wife. Some people get suspicious. Elid, are you talking to your husband about me? No. When there is epiphany, God moves in a certain way where everything becomes what? Clear. And this is the thing, folks. That's not something we can produce. So it's so important in the beginning of the year to realize our vision, right? Our vision is praying. Tell someone next to you, praying. That others see Jesus. That Jesus reveals himself in Cairo's time. And the people are blessed enough, are able to feel it and see it. That's when life change happens. The women in the well, if you look at it, she was resistant. It was like Jesus was pulling teeth having a conversation. If you look at the whole conversation, I mean, and that's why I wanted to read the whole 42 verses. You guys are like, wow, this is really long today. <laughs> wow. And it's kind of like 42 verses of her not getting it until the end. Until Epiphany, what? Arrived. Until God opened her heart and opened her eyes, and everything changed. There's churches in Samaria today because of this Kairos moment. So critically important. Like, now watch this. I've seen this over the decades. Don't feel so much responsibility and pressure to build the kingdom of God. Our job is not to build it. It's to declare it and let God build it. And if it doesn't happen, you just blame him. It's his problem. If the money doesn't come in, that's not my problem. It's his problem. It's his church. And so then what do we do? We, we do what Paul does in Ephesians 1. Paul says, I pray to, to the church of Ephesus. I pray that your heart would be enlightened so that you will know the glorious inheritance you have in Christ, and you will know him better. Because only revelation can do that, not knowledge. Only revelation can do that. That's when, that's the first 90 degrees. Until you see Jesus for who he is, nothing will change. Not even the knowledge of Jesus or what he's done. Because the revelation reveals who he is, not what he's done. 
That's when he becomes Messiah for, for you personally, and he saves you because you actually want to be saved. You ever try to save people who don't want to be saved? Oh, try talking to teenagers. They don't want to be saved. They think you need to be saved from your ignorance of cultural things. And I want, I want to save them from their ignorance of how hard life is going to be if you don't study hard. But it doesn't go through. So will you pray right now in your gospel witness or even discouragement of sharing Jesus to the world? Will you pray not the activity of the gospel activity, but will you pray for the revelation of Epiphany in this season, amen? Will we remember in the season of Epiphany, it's God's revelation and it's God's power, amen? That's when people change. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead us this year into prayer for life change for many that we know that we cannot change. Okay, but that's the first 90 degrees. What's the second? Let's move down. Now, the whole point of this passage, and we're going to be on this passage for the next few weeks, so you'll get really sick of it. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now, that's a phrase, but her scandalous life, you know, and the population of Sakar here in this town, you know, you're talking about a very few people, right? Max 2,000 in a small place, maybe 100, 200 people. Everybody knows everybody's business. The fact that she could be transparent and vulnerable about her life, and even though everybody knew her despair was great, her brokenness was great, and her darkness was great, but something she encountered was what? Greater. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have what? Heard it ourselves of revelation. And we know that this man really is Messiah. And I've seen this, particularly in the, in, in the last 10 years. Those who have truly experienced a vertical epiphany. Can we put the first point up? I think I actually missed that. So the first Vertical right angle is that when, how do you change 180 degrees? Well, a vertical epiphany that helps you make sense of and unveils God's time, right? Kairos and the theophany, meaning you know that you met with God. And that place becomes an altar, right? That place becomes divine for you. It becomes your benchmark of where God met you. You know where God met you. Because he saw it, and God unveiled it to you. And I've seen this. People could have divine revelation. They're in Muslim countries, in the Middle East, many people see visions of Jesus, and that's how their families come to Christ. 
because no amount of missionaries going into them will be effective. Jesus comes himself like he did to Apostle Paul. So this vertical epiphany is experienced numerous times, and it happens for many of us, and that's how most people come to Christ. The vertical epiphany that helps you make sense of God's time and God's visitation in your life. But if that's where it stops, and you never move from just vertical to horizontal, meaning the church, relationship with others, fellowship of other believers, you become, and I've seen this, tell someone next to you, weird. Tell someone next to you, don't become weird. You're like, well, too late. This person is already weird. Yeah, people who have done amazing things for God, who really did have a visitation from an angel, which I doubt very much most of the time, or seen visions of Jesus, and their, their, their life has changed 90 degrees. They did the first 90. It was the right angle. But if it doesn't take you from, and what happens is a lot, if there's no accountability, no real community and life shared, then you become proud. And a lot of people who experience a powerful change in their lives usually go into ministry or some type of ministry. And they, they, they go into hyperbole mode where they're the exception, they're the only ones, and then they have what you call Messiah complex. I'm the only one that has, here's God. And they lead a lot of people astray because there is anointing, there is that revelation, but there's no accountability and there's no really human exchange because they lose the idea that they've been saved. They feel like they've been chosen but not saved anymore. And things become really weird and odd. Abuses and many things like that that's being revealed today. If you want a 180 change and why the fruit of Samaria and churches are there today even today and why John writes about this passage is because she moved not just from being forgiven how many people love being forgiven by God? You're free, right? Well, amen, you feel it. You raise your hands. Oh, God, thank you. But it's more difficult to share sins and shortcomings and fears and struggles with the people around you. That's why Paul says it's in our weakness that Christ's strength is what? Made perfect. This is why the church can never be perfect because we're always trying to perfect that union with our weakness with each other because we need each other. And that's why the fruit of this text and why many believe this because she did something she could never do in decades, share her life, her sins, because she's been saved. She's been transformed. And it took her out of isolation into what? To community. And that's the second part. So what's the second point? And it's a horizontal epiphany. And <laughs> Excuse me. Horizontal epiphany is important because you know why I say a horizontal epiphany? Because vertical epiphany is easy. I mean, who am I to argue with God? If God wrestles me and he breaks my hip, I'm, all right, I submit, I surrender, God. 
But to say I need others, to be aware that I need others, not just want others, but need others, to express my struggles, my brokenness, that's the most difficult part. That's why epiphany is the right word. The Holy Spirit has to reveal to you and almost break you into submission to say, you need this. James tells us, confess your sins to one another, then you'll be healed. It never says, confess your sins to God, then you'll be healed. It says, confess your sins to others. It's easy to confess to God. And why this is particularly important, because the science backs up how life change happens in the brain. And this, we're going to close today just with this, but I'm going to come back to this. But the science shows that. In, when I went to Istanbul, there were two books that were featured. Mine, in the World Alliance, and Jim Walder's book about attachment. He calls it a hesed community of love. But he's a neurotheologian. You know what a neurotheologian is? He's a psychologist, but he's also a theologian. Sarah, you might be interested in this. Maybe a future career. We do neural theologians. A lot of people have problems in their head here. How many people have problems? Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> but this is, this is what uh, Jim Walder and Michael Hendricks says about attachment. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It is not an emotion. Although we feel it strongly, an attachment runs much deeper in the brain below willful control. Attachment is the best word scientists could find for what glues people together and little creatures to their parents. It produces an enduring care for the well-being of another. Attachment is a life-giving forever bond with no mechanism in the brain to unglue us. Attachment is the strongest force in the human brain. It's more primitive than primitive emotion, feelings you feel. Because that's actually produced by thought. That's where cognitive behavior therapy comes into play for most counseling. You take distortions and you fix them. And you sort them out. But attachment is instinctual. One of the things I talked about at Istanbul was that we need to get back to the basics of community and relationships rather than focus on efficacy. Jim Walder came to me and said, Sam, what you, say to, what you said in the morning was really profound. I don't think you even know it. It's like, thanks, Jim. <laughs> he goes, actually, there's a, you know, he talks like that, there's a science to that. Did you know that? He's a big nerd. And um, not that I am, but you know. <coughs> and um, we were talking and he said, why, and one thing you said about why food is so important, because you said food is one of the basic elements of community. He goes, do you know why that is? Because when you're born, how does a baby attach? Right? They latch on, breastfeeding. So the first stimulus, something in your brain that brings attachment to the mother is what? Food. And that's how the baby feels love. And that's how the baby understands what my, per my person is. 
the imprinting. Truth is, without community, you cannot live out the values you actually believe. And the truth is, whoever the, the three closest people to you are, is who you are. Your people? Tell someone next to you, my people. My people will call your people. My people, your people are who you are. Because attachment is even stronger than the ideas of even behavior. It comes, precedes behavior. And even values, values I think about. Because it's a form of attachment. It's primitive. Who you're drawn to and who your people are is who you are. This is why God says in the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments are not imperatives we talked about, right? He says, my people do not steal. My people do not commit adultery. He goes, our community doesn't value that. We don't value coveting, stealing, killing. We value life, the flourishing of others, and beauty. Like those kind of things. My people. And that's what Israel was to embody. So let me show you what this looks like. Next picture. Here we go. Let me show you a power of attachment. This is actually at Nancy's wedding. Nancy rarely posts. If you can ever reach her on social or on the phone, you probably can't. But this is why I took a picture of this one day, because she actually posted something. And this is her statement. I think this is the most pleased I ever seen with somebody to see food, she says. And yes, this is my son, and this is how I feel about food and how I'm attached I am to food. How many people here are attached to food? Raise your hand. You're attached to food? Yes, don't lie. Dan, I mean, Danny, you rape both your hands. <laughs> Why community is important. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a godly community. A community that accepts your faults, it's nice, it's perfect, it's great. But it, it doesn't, if it doesn't point up toward the vertical revelation, the horizontal has to align with the vertical, you're not doing a 180, you're still doing a 90. Or you might do a 160, which makes you weird. I'm not talking about an enabling community, I'm talking about a community that's safe, like the one created here in Samaria, but not soft. Where real life is exchanged, where real brokenness is shared, and real amending and consoling takes place because you are real with the people. In a church, in a community that does not address values and behaviors and sins that hurt you and others is not the right community, meaning it doesn't make you right with God or others. It has to be safe, but not soft. And if you look at this passage, that 180 degree change takes place when she moves from social isolation and her shame with her sins, and she's able to be transparent about her weakness and Christ's power, what? is made perfect. Folks,
That's why community is so important. Those two things, the first vertical thing is not something we can control. We can pray that happens. The second thing is something we can control. We can be that life-giving community for others to create a safe place, but also at the same time not soft. Because safe is hard enough, but not soft to sharpen takes courage. And the woman found courage because she right, she had a she truly experienced the 180-degree change. She had an epiphany that she needed her community. And that's how many believed in Jesus. Amen? Let's all stand together. And I want to read this verse as we close. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. See, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And when Jesus was confronted with the dullness of his disciples. I have food you do not know of. And Jesus said to the disciples, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So as we go into the new year, Rather than being preoccupied with all the things we have to do, the first action of our vision to see 180 change in our lives and others, we first have to be led. So today, will you lift your hands with me to God? and the Holy Spirit. And will you pray that the first action of this year is to be led by God. Things of earth will grow strange.
Father, we come before you in the beginning of the year and we pray as a community. We know and we believe that any manifestation, as Rutledge says, that reveals Jesus' true identity occurs because the power of God is at work upon the eyes, ears, and hearts of the recipients. We pray the unfolding of the epiphany season is therefore a record of God's definitive and unique actions of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that first that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so we can hear you. We can join you in what you're doing. so others could see your beauty and find a safe but not soft community. So others, like the woman in the well, could experience the 180 change found in you. Will you bow your heads for the benediction for the first service of the year? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.